Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. On today's show, we will unpack Gilles Deleuze's essay, To Have Done with Judgment. In the text and focus, Deleuze explicates his theory of the doctrine of judgment, or how the notion of judgment emerged in history and what it means for his concept of justice. This can be a challenging essay for those who have not read much of Deleuze's work, and maybe it is even challenging for those who have. But I selected this piece because I think it occupies an important intersection between Deleuze's political philosophy, his ethics, and pretty much every subfield of philosophy you can think of. Perhaps there is an irony involved in attempting to situate it in any of these categories, as Deleuze's work here takes flight from an oppressive notion of category as an effect of judgment. Joining me today are Matt, Will, and Adam. The first question that I have for everyone is, what is the problematic Deleuze constructs in this essay? What questions does it intend to address? And what are some questions that you might still have about the text? We'll start with Will first. I think the problematic is the age-old one with Deleuze that even Foucault points out in his early essay on his work. He's sort of attempting to overturn Plato once again here, in a certain sense, because the reality here is that the dream is this sort of film uh, that can exist over every interaction that attempts to sort of categorize and hold down particularized bodies by particularizing them, right? Um, so in a sense, too, what I got out of this essay is, while at one end we we end up with this sort of Spinozist uh, disposition at the end, I want to sort of throw out, I'm going to pull a little bit of a an atom here when I say, well, we don't even know what a faculty can do here. And part of what's What's problematized, I think, in a certain sense, when we talk about the notion of judgment, is categorization. One question that I'm going to have throughout this discussion is how this notion of judgment operates in its relation to Deleuze's description of justice. How exactly are we to make that sort of theoretical transition in this essay and what that connection is? So I think that's that's going to be where I sit today. So at least on my, my reading, I think there's two, two central problematics which kind of feed, in, feed into each other, really. Um, first one is, how do we move beyond a system of judgment? Because for Deleuze, any system of judgment and, and Nietzsche presupposes all sorts of transcendent values. And what's, what's particularly what dangerous, I suppose, about that, that for both Nietzsche and Deleuze is that as a result, it's incapable of basically accounting for what is new and vital in all the varied sort of motive, modes of existence we encounter in the world. Um, it's about an openness to the new, to experimentation, um, and the way that judgment as a kind of psychology of priest militates against this, right? Um, and so I guess the second thing there for me is that, um, and I, you know, these are clearly related, is he also, I think, tries to address the relationship between ethics and morality. Um, there's a, you know, there, there, whether there's a meaningful distinction to be made there or not, you know, there's that debate, but I think he, he certainly thinks there's a difference. And Deleuze clearly sides with a kind with, with Spinoza, and a kind of Spinozan ethic here, um, which affirms and multiplies our creative capacities rather than closing us off from the new, which he thinks is the problem of, of judgment, right? It, it's that it, it, it it sort of it closes off the possibility of, of really coming to terms with the new and the possibilities that it enables for us. Um, and so I guess if I have uh, you know a, a question sort of lingering as well about about this sort of short essay, um, it, it, it's how he how we should understand the relationship between judgment and cruelty, because he uses cruelty almost synonymously with justice at points, right? Um, and the passages about cruelty are interesting because they seem to overlap with some of the passages you can find in Anti-Oedipus with Qatabi, um, uh, about the sort of distribution of, uh, of desire, I suppose, uh, in, you know, quote unquote, primitive or, or tribal societies in, in certain stages. And so there's an interesting um, overlap there with some of his other work, but I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely clear on that myself. So I'm hoping we'll, you know, uh, through the course of this discussion, be able to you know pull that apart a bit, um, and I guess also this notion of combat needs to be unpacked as well. 
I just want to build off of uh, Matt's point a bit when it comes to um, the discussion of uh, the transcendental as, as it relates to, uh, to judgment. Because fundamentally, this is a, a critique of Kant. Kant, who, you know, famously said that in order for us to be able to know things or to understand them in the sense that we typically do is uh, propositionally, you know, in the sense, you know, Socrates is mortal, this man is a sinner, you know, subject, predicate, propositional judgments. There needs to be a whole certain amount of categories presupposed that delimit our knowledge in advance at the same time as it allows this knowledge to happen through the process of, uh, of judgment or forming into these propositional forms in which something that is experienced is placed under a judgment by which it is known according to certain subject and object uh, or subject and predicate structures and, and concepts. And what uh, to those trying to push back against here is that it's really with, with Kant. The fundamental lesson of, of Manuel Kant is that everything is only ever received in a form receivable. So there's not really any object that can really push back against the subject, make it feel uncomfortable, make knowledge feel uncomfortable. It's, it's all, in a sense, delimited and advanced, and that is what allows judgment to happen. But at the same time, the conditions of judgment are sort of, in a sense, a, a judgment upon knowledge, upon what it can do. What the the essence of what Deleuze is trying to do here, really, is just asking some very basic questions of how can we take our experience of, of our own bodies and our raw material facts of ourselves as living beings, whatever bodies we may meet in the world, and how can we take them as they become present to us, as they appear before us, as they flow in and out through our lives, and as they affect our lives, as they affect the sen- our sensory organs as we experience them, as also we experience ourselves in the same way that we affect ourselves, as, as, as Kant said too. And it, the question is, with judgment, is what, what obstructs this from occurring? What in Kant actually obstructs us from knowing bodies as, as they are and actually is a, a highly restrictive limit to them and also where do these restrictions come from and what would a fitting alternative look like that's the question i have for this Deleuzean piece that relates to um knowledge and as to the knowing subject is is uh, how is this experience a free of judgment structured and how does it relate to um life in the sense of the time of our lives the time of experience how does judgment relate to time and how would a non-judgmental form uh, what he would call a justice form a cruelty form how would that relate to time what would temporality be under that uh, mode of uh, knowledge some of the questions that i have about this text are very similar to adam's i want to know what deleuze thinks what do experiments look like perhaps not at the individual level, but at the collective level? And what are the implications that it has for a politics broadly construed? For example, I mean, clearly, the notion of judgment imposes a form of organization, and we'll get, we'll get more into that as we go. But the question is, how do you organize a politics that bases itself on a praxis of disorganization, or at least getting underneath or out of uh, forms of organization. And I think the other question that I have is, when it comes to politics anyway, because I do see this as a political essay, how is it that we can develop a political program based on Deleuze's prerogatives in this essay that do not recapitulate the mechanisms of judgment that Western culture has produced, or at least in the way that Deleuze sees it? And so maybe with that said, what we'll do is we'll dive right into some of these terms, the the term, the doctrine of judgment, and what he means by that. I'll kind of give a little bit of an introduction, and then maybe I'll pass it to Adam. We'll just go, we'll go backwards through everybody here and, and see what we have to offer. So I see the origin of the doctrine of judgment as a historical development. It's something that comes through a complex of Greek tragedy, philosophy, Christian uh, religion, and so forth. And I I think the most fundamental way that Deleuze sees this is that the way that it comes through us from the Greeks in the form of theatrical tragedy is the creation of tribunals, tribunals that oversee the construction of categories and the kinds of figures that emerge on the stage in Greek tragedy. And that intersects with, for example, the philosophy of Plato, for instance, and the notion of the great chain of being, and the notion of forms, and so on. And then, of course, we have Christianity and the notion of infinite debt that we'll get to later. And those things kind of combine to form a notion of accusation, juridical power. And this notion of judgment is diffuse within all of those things. I think I, I would get into the, the Greek stuff in a bit, but I, I think this is... um. 
if you follow Deleuze's sort of Nietzschean influence, he starts with with the Greeks, but for him, I think um, Kant is the real exemplar of of the doctrine of judgment. If thinking of judgment as debt, you are already in debt to the faculty of judgment. You're already in debt to the the transcendental conditions of knowledge, and one of those, of course, is this this transcendental unity that he calls God. And Nietzsche sort of points at this and says, "You're just doing Christianity, but." purely based on a um, more rational kind of assumption. And then Kant sort of, well, doesn't say anything, he's dead by then. But <laughs> Kant would simply say, but this is what we have to assume because at the end of the day, if you keep pressing, you just say, this is what I want. This is what reason wants. And in that sense, we are entering into a sort of a politics of, of desire. But I guess to go back to the Greeks, yeah, the Greeks, the idea, the origins of judgment came about in, a, in, in debt. To be indebted to someone, they can pass judgment on you because you haven't paid them back in a sense. They can excise uh, what they want from you, take what they want from you, and then this becomes transposed into uh, the divine realm of the god. Everyone has gotten their lots, you know, the system of lots, you draw lots, you get your lottery, you get your chance elements, you get your particular capacities from the gods as, as favoured by them, or as I explained it in the myth, you know, the son of one of them, or you know, when Zeus was on his one of his horny days. I say one. Nietzsche explains this in a similar way too, because he talks about the genealogy of morals, the idea of being indebted to one's ancestors. And this becoming transposed into the realm of the gods, where debts have been fully paid back. So it lingers in the idea of um ancestry in the past and lingering before death. And lingering sort of after death. And I think this is where sort of the idea of judgment comes from, this lingering debt which eventually gets elevated to a transcendentally monistic uh, sorry, monotheistic level in Christianity, and then is stripped of it, all of its wholesome Catholic imagery and, and content, and then becomes the austere principle of you have to act like this is this way, regardless in, in Kant. It's interesting, the idea of uh, judgment, and also specifically the um, the way that um, Kant make use, makes use of it. Um, it. It's a persistent theme throughout all of Deleuze's work. Um, that's everything I wanted to add there. You can find it in his very early book on Kant, which I think was 1963, and um, it, it carried on through, you know, um, at least through Anti-Oedipus, um, where he explicitly says that the model that Kant develops um, for the mind, for, for reason, um, is that of a tribunal which um, exercises judgment, right? It's kind of tribunal of reason. And so I, I guess I just wanted to add that, you know, this is something that comes up again and again and again for Deleuze, um, both the idea of judgment as a, a sort of problematic and you know objectionable thing, but also this interest in which which Adam's spoken to the way that Kant specifically um, kind of sets up the, the you know our idea of reason around the model of a tribunal which dispenses judgment essentially. And just to reinforce Matt's point, Kant actually calls it a tribunal. Yeah, in the critique of pure reason, he calls it a, tri- a tribunal. So. He's he's laying himself out for the for the attack here, but that's because he's already assumed his own correctness from from the start. I think the notion of of debt is crucial in um, in the Nietzschean sense. I think I don't want to lean too heavily into like a philological notion of this idea, Um, but I do think that in a sense I want to go back to something I said earlier. In that you know when I say that judgment can act as sort of a film of perception, and I don't again want to be phenomenological either. it is sort of um, the idea of, and, and Nietzsche talks about this, the consciousness of owning debt to the deity, right? And sort of the clan becomes the society and, and it moves on and on and on. But one thing that I think Deleuze does with judgment that I think is helpful is that he can sort of tie down uh, Kant back to the very Judeo- Christian doctrine that Kant seems to be sort of attempting to work with and around, well, work around necessarily. I still struggle with this distinguishment between judgment and justice. And I'm wondering whether or not we can use uh, Nietzsche as sort of the, the mechanism to create this distinguishment or this distinguishing between judgment and justice. Because the, I, I just I wonder where does the creditor debtor relationship play into this thing? The creditor debtor relationship for Deleuze in this essay and as for Nietzsche is um is before any kind of, of exchange because in I think the second 
essay of the genealogy of morals. And each sort of concern is throughout the genealogy, really, is uh, what is the kind of being that can make promises? And without promise, you can't really have exchange just because there's not really any sort of mechanism by which there's any commonality between the two and which you can get, um, you can redeem what that has been, has been taken out. And I think you can see this in a linguistic way, you know, where, um, as you know, as Saucer says that the relationship between the signifier and the signified is arbitrary. The promise is the capacity to fix these two in a relation and then <laughs> say that they're going to have the same meaning later. It's not, it's, it's fixing to make a contract between two people is to fix this meaning and to attempt to maintain it between the two in the, in the mode of exchange. So the mode of exchange presupposes kind of form of a, a, a semantic promise. So to go back to um, just the judgment bit and regard the idea of debt, because in, in the text, Deleuze says that the idea of debt that sits at the heart of the judgment requires infinite life because you are infinitely in debt to God as he has judged you because you have your know, original sin. And this is exactly the same as in Kant, because Debt requires infinite life because you've never really paid yourself off. In Kant, you've never, you can't really pay yourself off of the moral law. You still just have to do it anyway. And it requires the presupposition, in order for it to make any meaning whatsoever, that you must assume you, uh, you must assume or act as if there is immortality in the second critique. There's, there's just so much just Kant flowing through this. And this is inherently related to immortality and infinity of life because it's related to... Um, to time and judgment places you in what Deleuze says it is an order of time. And just to talk about time and judgment, this really brings back to me a, a part of Thus Spoke Zarathustra called um, On Redemption. And the idea is the origin, honestly, it's actually about the origin of punishment. And the origin of the punishment comes for Nietzsche from the idea that the will is always willing itself into presence, but presence is always a passing moment. Every moment is always flowing into time. It's like the more of Kronos devouring all of his children. The will can't get back what it's done. It can't get back its creations. It won't affirm creation for creation's sake, but it can't will backwards. So what does it do? It copes the only way it can by saying that this is actually the right thing to have happened. All existence is punishment for creation, and therefore existence is punishment, and rightly so. And this is this is for, for Nietzsche the origin of judgment, because the idea that you are in actually in order to cope with this, you're actually in debt to Kronos, to time, to the creator. And that's why you have to keep doing these things. And it's good that they're taken away from you. There's a presupposing infinite amount of creativity flowing into an infinite kind of void. And as it relates to time in judgment, the time of judgment is a kind of calling to presence. You are called before the tribunal, you are summoned to it to be present. And the judgment tries to fix you in the moment of your presence before the tribunal as the thing that it judges you to be. You are this, X is Y, that is the judgment. And so there's a whole sort of Aristotelian temporality of fixing, forcing the now to remain as that what it is. And right. it constantly does this because the now is always changing. So there's always to be a constant, unending force of saying, this moment is now and you are this. You have been judged by the tribunal of, of time itself. It's the pernicious nature of this, like, f it's like a fluid stagnance, right? Like, uh, and and maybe that's why if we do get some sort of, and I think we do, we do get a Deleuzean ethics. But like, I think that's the difference between either sort of affirming your claim, right? Affirming uh, the your lot or so on, as as Dulles talks about, um, or sort of being able to be sort of worthy of what happens rather than what one is. And I think that's why this essay is so interesting because it pulls in so many disparate elements of Deleuze's scholarship from ranging from like difference and repetition all the way to the third chapter of Anti-Oedipus, um, which is why I think in, in many ways this is, while this essay is what, like nine pages, it's really difficult. Just to go back to Adam's point, talking about Nietzsche and presence, I mean, ultimately what's at stake here is the immortality of man. The wager that we are making by consigning ourselves to infinite debt is the possibility of us becoming immortal at the end of our lives. And also absolving ourselves of all of the guilt and so forth that is attendant to that. It's interesting because the one thing that's not really unpacked in this essay, or we don't get, it operates more as a grace note, is where Deleuze talks about how the system or the institution of the doctrine of judgment evolved slowly, where the gods first played kind of a passive role in the world of men, 
And then it, it seemed as if slowly this merger between the, the world of men and the world of gods, that fissure or that, that crack was, was kind of smoothed over by the thumb to the point where the, the notion of debt firmly went onto the side of the gods. We gave up the system of cruelty to the gods, at which point the gods became managers and then imposed categories and lots and so forth. And so maybe at this time, we can talk about that a little bit more, because what Deleuze says is there's actually five distinct movements in the institution of the doctrine of judgment. We kind of touched on them a little bit, but maybe we can talk about the cutting of existence into lots. And I know that's something that maybe Adam wanted to talk about. Lots are, in traditional uh, Greek way of doing things, you'll simply pick lots. You know, if you pick, it's distributed by chance, but chance here in the distribution of, of lots is taken up to the divine level as something that is not simply assigned by uh, another another human being equally as finite as contingent as you, but uh, given up to a higher power. What your lot is, you know, in English, somebody say, oh, that's just my lot. And then as it's saying, that's just my destiny. That's why I've been given. And there's an element of fixity to it that lasts. And just to build off of that and and to kind of come back to what Will had mentioned about Foucault early on, the creation of lots is essentially a creation of categories, a, a kind of categorical fixity anyway, where you either fit in or you don't. And if you fit in, for some of us who fit into these categories, there's a, a kind of pleasure involved, right? But if you don't fit into those categories, there's an extreme existential anxiety to the point where it feels like you're kind of pushing yourselves back into the cracks of the category, which has been layered onto you or imposed onto you, whatever the metaphor might be. This is what Qatari talks about, where he talks about sort of the policing of desire and the policing of expression, where he says that maybe one day the real madness will be exposed to have been that of a society that neurotically challenged individuals who sort of started to press up against the barriers of particular forms of expression mm. and, and what was considered sort of acceptable. And there's sort of a neuroticism that is aligned with sort of categorizing. And But the thing is, it presupposes so much of what we do in life. Um, and, and that's sort of where Deleuze has to make his kind of interesting qualifying statement at the very end. And, you know, he, he basically has to say that this is, this is not uh, some sort of, this is not, I think, subjectivism for the very reason that uh, to pose a problem in terms of forces rather than in terms of categorization or adherence and so on already surpasses the question of subjectivity. So in a sense, I think that that's the crux of this essay. And I think particularly, Craig, you're right to say that there is an ethical undertone here and that it's the job of Nietzsche's child, like Nietzsche's child at the end of the sort of destructive phase of the lion, that it then becomes sort of this capacity to create. To maybe give an example of judgment, I suppose, you know, and to draw us back to Nietzsche, because clearly Nietzsche is, you know, running all the way through this essay as well. One of the most pernicious forms of judgment for Nietzsche and for uh, Deleuze is the way in which we are called to hold the world itself in judgment, right? Um, to presuppose some set of um, transcendent values which the world can never live up to, uh, to judge life therefore inadequate. Um, rather than affirming it, we deny it, we deny life. Um, rather than trying to uh, draw our understanding from the world itself, we should, you know, on this view, sort of refrain from judgment and open ourselves up to the sort of the specificity of the new which we always encounter. And similarly, to ask not what we are in accordance with sort of fixed, pre-given categories, values, what our lot in life is, you know, determined, you know, from the outset, but to ask instead of that, what we can be, what we can become. And it's it's all sort of for me, in this this essay, it's all tied together with this sort of this Nietzschean influence, this idea of sort of the priest's psychology as sort of the the the, the one who holds the world in judgment for fa and fail it fails to meet um, the standards and is condemned. Um, and of course, you know, there's this idea of um, infinite postponement as well, which is also key, also key to um, to to this, this form of judgment, right? And it's why he talks about uh, Kafka, for example, with 
you know, um, for example, the trial, right? It's, it holds the world in sort of indefinite, sort of suspended judgment. Um, and so that's one of, I, I suppose, sort of this pernicious forms that judgment can take. And this is presumably something that would have concerned, um, uh, Deleuze to, to a great extent, given his, you know, his influence by, uh, by Nietzsche and by, you know, Spinoza's ethics, right? Which constantly ask us or challenge us to, um, to remain open to these things, to, um, to remain sort of in a certain sense within the world, um, and not to judge it as failing, you know, to meet these standards, but to open ourselves up to it and see what we can do with it. So you just round off the moment on lots. So lots are a system of debt and exchange of what people have been given in their lives distributed by chance that first gets deterritorialized from the imminent sort of just the, what people's bodies are, what they can do and what forces are, are, are acting through and on them and within them. Then it gets deterritorialized onto from simply the territory that you're in to, in the Greek world, to Olympus, to a multiplicity of gods from obviously people on a higher realm. They're the ones who fix you and your lot because they have a higher power. Then with Christianity, it becomes deterritorialized even further, away from any real, any earthly territory to heaven. And there's just one god who has done his judgment. There's no really, not really any lots anymore. You've been given your judgment by God. There's not much. There's no multiplicity to it. God has already judged you. You've got original sin. If you're a Protestant, you're either in or out. And now, with Kant, sorry, um, it's been deterritorialized purely to the abstract notion that you should act as if you're being judged. And this sort of parallels in a similar way to how deterritorialization and re-territorialization work within capital, because it's almost like it's been done from a simple bunch of bosses to financiers to eventually the abstract capital itself, which is indefinitely postponed because capital is capitalizing upon itself, trying to become more capital, but it will never be capital. It's indefinite. Capital will never fucking be itself. And that's why you can capitalize on it. A lot of what you're saying tracks with Deleuze's analysis of law in his reading of Kant, in his book on Kant, particularly, and I think I've talked about this in previous episodes, where he starts by talking about the evolution of law through Plato as being the second best possibility for humanity's existence over and above the good, and then law evolving over time into this self-legislating autonomous entity. And then when we get to Kafka, actually, perhaps I, I would argue that maybe Kafka is the end point, uh, even beyond Kant, in a sense, because of the very diffuse nature of this automatism of law, where you know you have the bureaucratic entity almost functioning automatically. But with Kafka, the one thing that we, we do get in terms of viewing his writing as an experimental line of flight away from the, the dominance of law is he elucidates the sort of interstices, the sort of breaks where, to use a Deleuzean term, zones of indiscernibility within the law where we can take a line of flight. We do see that in the trial. They talk about that in the Kafka book. Uh, but when we look at Kafka's short stories, and this is one of the things that my master's thesis was on, is those are the places where Kafka really shows the law, as Deleuze describes it here, as this sort of nightmare, this dream that erects walls, boundaries, and draws you into this extractive mechanism from which there's no escape. And I'm thinking of stories like Before the Law and um, The Imperial Message. All of those things, I think, are important to understanding Deleuze's approach here. His notion of law tracks side by side with the notion of judgment that he's articulating here. But before we move on, I think it's really important that we talk about the notion of justice and the system of cruelty. And for that, there was kind of an extra credit reading assignment for this episode, which was Artaud's The Theater and Its Double. Maybe we can all get in there a little bit to talk about what a system of cruelty is. And I know Adam and I, we read it. Uh, so maybe, Adam, you can start out by just telling us, like, what, what does Artaud mean by a system of cruelty? And then we'll talk about maybe how Deleuze appropriates that term. So let's just give the um, definition of cruelty from Artaud in uh, To Have Done With the Judgment of God. Cruelty means eradicating by means of blood and until blood flows, God, the bestial accident of unconscious human animality, wherever one can find it. So it's the idea of letting things flow out, op creating openings, getting rid of God and getting rid of what Artaud thinks as, as God's judgment. What Otto is trying to do is take away the idea of theatre as a, as, as honestly as mere theatre. He's trying to make it, bring it 
bring back to what he calls the dignity of being a function, what we would call when we think about a theatre as putting on a production. And to do this, he's trying to um, re-energise the theatre by one, doing what Deleuze and Guattari would call moving out the space by decentralising the theatre, having it being done in a sort of hangar and having the audience simply not being an observer, but being an active, uh, not simply a part, not necessarily a part of it, but someone who is forced upon to, is forced upon to in relation to not only their own body, but also the bodies of the performers, because he's trying to create a language of the body that is trying to liberate sort of things that lie underneath the body rather than bringing them under uh, traditional forms of speech and symbolism, which for him are dominated by writing. Uh, Arto's, Arto's theatre is not, uh, it doesn't use pre written plays. So if it does, it absolutely fucks with them and gives no authority to the text as a kind of transcendental uh, or transcendent, sorry, author figure like a god. It, gives, it does away with the judgment of the author, and instead it tries to articulate things through an intonation, what he calls an intonation of the body, which for him is trying to record a language of gestures to try and communicate without using speech, without using propositions, and hence without using judgment. So cruelty is really a centering of, of the body in the experience to convey language in terms of force and convey meaning in terms of force without necessarily putting a transcendent, a transcendental uh, figure that unites it all behind them. It's very imminent. It's very decentralized. It takes space as it comes in a very enclosed way. It's not a, it's not a hierarchy of space between stage and um, stage and uh, audience sitting at auditorium. Imminent bodies everywhere, blood everywhere cruelty. <laughs> and I, I think one of the important things to mention is Artaud saw the theater of his time, or at least preceding him, as having become subordinated to the tribunal of metaphor and the tribunal of psychoanalysis, where theater was a place to render psychological meanings, right? We went to the theater, we sat in this sort of prescribed space, we watched the show and we came away and extracted from it meanings. And I really like that you pointed out the use of space as being important to the understanding of the system of cruelty in his terms, the theater of cruelty. One of the interesting takeaways from reading the theater and its double is Artaud's observations of the Balinese theater. There's a bit of Orientalism in his, in his reading of it, but I think there is something that we can get from that reading that's important regardless, which is the notion that the space, which, you know, whether we're watching theater for psychological meetings or not, is essentially the same in terms of its three dimensions. But within that space, there lie, once again, interstices. There is a body without organs, the non-organic vitality that smothers and covers the space. And if we are to explore the space in ways that are not subordinated to these presuppositions about theater, how theater is to be done, what's the purpose of theater, and so on, we can create these new affects. And something comes out of it that's alive. And that's what I think Deleuze wants to import from Artaud, is how can we create a sense of enlivenment, getting out from underneath the oppression of category, from underneath the oppressions of judgment, and create something new. And so, yes, to answer Will's question, there is an ethics at work here. Maybe one thing we should do is uh, just admit that where it smells of shit, it smells of being. <laughs> yeah, right? that, yeah. Um, like I think I think that's that's sort of part of the reason why Deleuze and Guattari are drawn to Arto and why Foucault and so on are drawn to Arto. He is, in a sense, uh, the Jean Genet of their generation. He brings with him sort of the the death of the theater of absurdity, and he is sort of the thing that turns a new leaf. Right? You read, you read any biography of Deleuze, Guattari, Foucault, and so on, and you, you see that to have done. Uh, with the judgment of God as this transitionary moment, as this uh, event, like this non-event too, right? Because it's a radio play. It doesn't really get any sort of, like you'll get grad programs in theater, do, theater doing little renditions of it here and there. I know you can find like a strange kind of dated one online and so on. But it was this non-event, right? Because it was this small radio play, probably not a lot of listeners and so on. But it housed within it this, this moment where uh, 
cruelty and the imminence of the body in that space, in that space of theater, sort of takes hold and is in a sense liberating. And I know, Craig, you'll always say we have to like be careful with our toe, right? Yeah. Because in Antietopus, you sort of get this this admonition of the reader to not have a particular reading of Antietopus where we make a judgment value of deterritorialization over reterritorialization. Um, but I think maybe that's where where we start with the primacy of bodies. And of course, uh, Deleuze in this essay to have done with judgment sees that kind of as uh, one of the strongest elements of Lawrence's work. Although it does go very far in terms of relation to, to territory because he gets rid of the notion of, of the set piece. It's, he can set the scene, yes, but there are no sets. There are no big hanging castles. There's a sense in which in the sort of hierarchical setting of the auditorium, there's a stage and then there's a thing behind but in terms of the backstage and the stage hands. But there's also the thing behind all, which is the author. You know, the author, the director, the transcendent presence that dictates all of this. And there's a sense of which from the position of, of a mere onlooker in the audience that you know, these sets can be infinite. If whatever they bring out from behind this this veil, you can just keep going on and on and on. It's brilliant. You know, it's it's the it's the creating God giving us all things, you know, bright and beautiful. Whereas take away the set, take away the director, make it all an imminent process of the body in which is spoken through bodies and not through the 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 settings that they're already in. And you've you've just got this raw cruelty of showing you sort of what a bo- showing you what a body can do and showing how these gestures can be forces and how you respond to them. The forces don't actually the forces of the person's body don't really care about how you respond to them. That's why it's the theatre of cruelty, because it's 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 saying things to you as a kind of affront. It's trying to elicit a kind of response. It's kind of like the same provocation I guess you would get in example, I mean some of the edgier strains of power electronics and maybe even noise music. There's an affront to this. And it depends, like, do you want to go over the flow or not? The flow isn't already kept behind you in this setting that's already transcendently predetermined by, you know, the faculty of, of, of the author. It's not inscribed upon the stage and therefore it's, it's away from you. God is in his heaven, all is right in the world. No, it's being inscribed on you. It's being inscribed on the people who are transmitting this inscription, who are drawing blood and having sort of these gestures written upon their own body in the same way that Deleuze points out happens in, in the penal colony, where he gives it as a prime example of, of cruelty. I think one thing here is that the violence on the body in Artaud is also an affront to the presuppositional uh, approach that, let's say, like the experience of theater-going had. And Deleuze will talk about this in what is philosophy, in his cinema books, and even in his book on Francis Bacon, where he says that an artist, a director, and so on, doesn't only have uh, sort of the blank canvas, the mise en scène, uh, or the you know the camera angle, and so on. They have all of these sort of cliches that they must work with. And what Artaud does is he actually takes the very nature of presuppositional thinking to be the cliche that he's going to attack. That's going to be the very thing that is, you know, in his sight line, like his rifle is pointed at that. So I think that's part of why Artaud is, is so fascinating is because the violence inscribed on the body is a, is a means of also escaping. The one thing that I can add to that, too, here, there's kind of a, a mysterious word that comes up at the end of this essay, which is the term athleticism, which is something that Arto talks about. And you can also find it in the, the book on Francis Bacon. And the way that Deleuze uses that term in relation to talking about the system of cruelty is that athleticism involves becomings and allowing ourselves to be transfigured by becomings. The having open to ourselves the possibility of engaging with forces such that it returns to us a kind of internal agency. But not only that, it gives us the ability to slip between figures in a way that is disfiguring. And so this is where we get the relationship between Francis Bacon and Artaud here, is that this play with this figure, the smearing of faces, right, the disfiguration of the body, the scarification of the body in theatrical terms, is all about escaping the body and escaping its figure to unleash these forces. Shall we move on to talk about what's with Deleuze and dreams versus intoxication? Why does he oppose these terms? We all know the famous quote, if you're trapped in the dream of the other, you're fucked. 
In this case, Deleuze once again sort of reiterates that 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 call to your own safety by announcing here the problem with dreams. What is the problem with dreams versus intoxication? Well, the first thing is, let's think about the history of the interpretation of dreams. It involves nothing less than tribunals. I mean, think about not only do we have shamans in pre-modern societies, but we have psychoanalysts and so forth. And one of the problems with dreams is that the experience of the dreamer involves this epistemological hurdle. You never know when you are in a dream, whether you're trapped or not. And it bypasses dreams, bypass the sensor of knowledge and experience that we have that is capable of repelling the kind of judgments that he says are hurled into the void of dreams. Uh, but I'm curious if, if you guys had a take on the whole dream bit. It was a little bit of a surprise given we know the critique of Freud and Freudianism, but to go directly after dreams was a bit of a surprise to me the first time that I read this essay. I mean, I think in a certain sense you could say that it's it's comparable to, I think, the word we get in madness and civilization. And uh, this is why, you know, sometimes I, <laughs> we should all just DM Taylor Adkins, the, the, the notion of, of the dazzlement of the dream. Um, and what, what I struggle with and the question that I have about, uh, about dreams um, in this essay is this question of being able to secure the very fact that one is in a dream, which is the problematizable element here, versus I think it's it's counter to what he calls a sort of insomnia, right? Uh, and the Apollonian, this this uh, idyllic almost uh, representational form of thinking, is the one that he'll ascribe to to dreaming, whereas then. Uh, sort of this rumbling beneath it all, this Dionysian uh, disposition is the the one uh, that that he will most uh, compare to uh, to insomnia. But I know that Adam had an interesting comment philologically about the very notion of insomnia that I think might help. Okay, Etymolo etymologists. Um... <laughs> right in uh call me a prick if this is wrong <laughs> is, but i don't see any of you guys calling it heidegger for this so you know there we go so i was just thinking about you know the term uh, the latin uh so insomnius and somat for body or you had link the sort connection between insomnia and the body and bodyliness and sort of the idea of mainly i was just thinking about the idea of dreams as a kind of exploration of the body but there's a kind of passiveness to being asleep in the dream. So if, the idea that there's sort of an insomniac kind of dreaming as being an active form of dreaming, of participating in the territory of your own dreams without um, simply being passive to them. Because you're passive to them, the forces that sort of pass through, pass through yourself, they're already sort of predetermined by what's come before. They, if, if you're going to be a Freudian, there's like past memories and the like. But if you're active on it, you can actually sort of take these forces as they come, you can repel them, you can participate in your dream, which is always already another's dream because you're dreaming about things you've encountered. And there are dreams instilled by you in edibilizing forces of psychoanalysis and, and society and culture. I just mean, just like a very active participation in it. I, I keep thinking of this quote from Deleuze, which I'm not sure how it fits into this, you know, about. Um, you know, it's not the slumber of reason that engenders monsters, but vigilant and insomniac rationality. And obviously, monster is probably, uh, and he's probably using it quite negatively here, but the idea that Kantian reason definitely is, is insomniac. It cannot sleep anyway. It really, it can universalize sleep, but really, it's not really allowed to. That's, that's why it has to presuppose immortal, immortal life and immortal vigilance for that reason. I don't, the dream just sounds like a space of creativity to me. It's, it's a territory of creativity that's kind of smoothed out if you actively participate in it. And then you can sort of take things as they are. You can be active in it. And I guess in terms of relation to creativity, now you conceive your own body in a fantastic, in sort of a fantastic image. Then yeah, I, 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 I'm not actually quite sure to be honest, but then on top of it too, like Deleuze says that, uh, that these dreams are, I think, what is it? Uh, uh, too governed. Like they, they set mm. up their own little tribunals and so on. And that's the very thing that like Artaud pushes against with the surrealists, supposedly. And again, you two have read more Artaud than I he have. He says, uh, judgment is like a dream that feeds on death and erects walls around people. So it's mm. uh, judgment is is the dream of the other because of 
The other is this God is this thing that's outside of you that has already predetermined what you've done even before, before you've known it. It's this fate, it's this autonomous faculty of reason which conditions the very um, possibility of, of your own experience. And in contrast to this, he calls um, dreamless sleep to be an intoxication, um, an ecstasy. He says, you know, ecstasy is the sort of things we look for when we go for uh, to escape dreams and judgment. He even says drugs now. And he compares it to, he compares the sort of insomnia of a dreamless sleep to lightning. And when you mention lightning around Deleuze and sort of his Nietzscheanism, I always think of one of the key examples from the genealogy of morals that um, Nietzsche gives against the uh, the slave morality that judges people based on what they could have done. You know, you could have done this, but sorry. So, for example, in the Masters, oh, you, you killed that person. I could have killed that person because if I look at the subject and predicate, I could have done this. Oh, maybe I could detach them in my mind, so therefore it didn't. But Nietzsche says, well, this is stupid. It's like saying, oh, the lightning didn't have to flash because in the sentence we say, the lightning flashed. The lightning and the flash are indispensable. Mm-hmm. So lightning is this insomnia in which you are in tune with the activity of, of your own body, even in the realm of dreaming, even in your own imagination. Your imagination, your conception of yourself, which is, I guess has an ethical level, ethical level too, is in turn in tune with its own forces and open to its own forces and open to interacting with them. It's not really a fearful kind of thing. It's a imminent, no preconditions, just going for it. And it's, there's a kind of cruelty to that in the imminence of one's own body and the risks that that has, given that we are ultimately finite beings. But this is something that will reorient us in a way that we, in a way, by being within the system of cruelty, we escape the highest cruelty, which is the infinite judgment. I pulled up... I think it's it's not Abbe Dare. It's Deleuze at La Famille, 1987, where he's talking about why dreams are dangerous. And he, re, he recalls the, he says, people's dreams are always devouring and threatening to engulf us. And he talks about the danger of a, a young girl retelling her dream. And this is just a riff here, but I mean, I think about how that infamous scene in Mulholland Drive where the where the man tells his dream to his psychoanalyst. And then the whole thing just plays out over again with the analyst being the psychopomp who delivers him to the horror. I think that really resonates with the discussion that we're having here because there's this interesting line that we can trace from the actual occurrence of a dream, from the terror that it may induce, to the actual telling of the dream, making it communal, communicating it to others, and then the tendency of the community to act as a tribunal for that dream. Imagine having certain kinds of dreams, for example, in Salem, Massachusetts, as a Protestant in certain years, right? There's something that happens at the moment, this sort of lacuna between the realm of reason that is the dream and then the world constructed by reason under the doctrine of judgment, where the dream passes from one world to the other and the effect that it has upon not only the dreamer, but the community itself, and then, you know, those who who cast judgment on the dream. Yeah, I I think one way that we can sort of further uh, this a little bit is, you know, I... The the question then becomes, if if a Dionysian... uh, state of intoxication is sort of uh a way of escaping judgment maybe one thing we can do is talk about what intoxication means just briefly in the birth of tragedy um mm. because i know that craig you recently did a reading of mm. of Nietzsche's birth of tragedy and i'm just wondering you know coming away from that experience and reading Nietzsche is always an experience and then um, addressing this text, what that meant to you. Well, I think we, we've kind of covered a fair bit of it here. I think Deleuze is pretty liberal in his appropriation of the concept of intoxication as he's using it here. In general, the idea of intoxication or just being intoxicated is an affront to reason, but also it induces that kind of it can potentially induce the kind of paroxysm that gives you the shakeup that can get you to wiggle out of the overlay of categories that we're talking about and explore intensities that are not normally available to us under the pressures of of guilt and judgment. Mm. What we'll do is we'll kind of cycle back to a discussion of ethics 
and escaping judgment. And maybe that's best accomplished by talking about the final movement in the doctrine of judgment, which is combat everywhere. Before we get into that, Matt, maybe you wanted to say a few things about ethics. Yeah, just just a few things. One of one of the ones I wanted to um, so there's a line in in the um, essay which I wanted to to read. Um, uh, Deleuze writes, "The way to escape judgment is to make yourself a body without organs. To find your body without organs. This had already been Nietzsche's project to define the body body in its becoming, in its intensity, as the power to affect or to be affected. That is." As will to power, um, and of course, there's clear, you know, Spinozan, Spinozist, um, you know, um, undercurrents there as well, and, and it clearly also ties into um, his writing in, you know, um, Anti Oedipus in particular. Um, so there's a kind of latent ethics at work here, which um, draws, draws, I think, explicitly in in some cases, the these com- competing Nietzschean and Spinozist influences to emphasize the importance of um, experimental, free, creative, and open living, right? Um, and this goes right back to one of the problems with judgment we talked about at the start, which is one of the problems with judgment is that insofar as it relies upon preconceived categories, transcendent moral values, and so on, norms of, norms of evaluation, um, it, 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 it disposes itself, judgment disposes itself against um, this process of experimentation of new, right? Um, and so this, this I think it ties back together with that, um, while also you know, making quite clear, you know, um, you know, one 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 obvious and fair question would be, you know, if judgment is so, you know, bad, um, what do we do about it, right? <laughs> um, and this is his answer, right? He gives you a, you know, in his slightly obscure prose, I think, and nevertheless a relatively practical ethical. Um, answer to that question. The answer, to say it again, for Deleuze, the way to escape judgment is to make yourself a body without organs, to find your body without organs. This had already been Nietzsche's project to define the body in its becoming, in its intensity, as a power to affect or to be affected, that is, as the will to power. It's about um, experimenting in new forms of living, essentially, um, and to to think and act in a kind of um, becoming more than uh, being considered as a kind of um, uh, eternal, presupposed, um, and inevitable, you know, part of who we are and what we are, um, and so that that seems to be the root out for uh, for Deleuze. There is a strange but important example that I want to venture here as an example of Deleuzean ethics in action, particularly with regard to the body without organs, and that example is the example that Mark Fisher brings up in Post-Capitalist Desire about the desire to consume Starbucks as being emblematic of the aborted desire for communism. And Fisher offers that example in conjunction with the indictment made by the journalist, and I forget her name at this time, who criticized protesters for lining up at a Starbucks either before or after a protest. And in this case, that's going to be a very crass but conventional example of judgment here. And because it's true that capitalism is a system of domination, it entails that judgment is one of the functions important to maintaining that system. And so the example that Fisher brings up actually highlights this tension of intensities that that can be said to underlie the identity of the individual under capitalism, but can find no other expression for those intensities except in the venue of Starbucks or a similar coffee shop. Because it's at a place like the capitalist coffee shop that certain values are actualized, but done so in a way that can only be expressed through the filter of capitalist institutions, insofar as you're living in a capitalist society. And I think the conjunction between Deleuze's ethics and Fisher's ethics involves the question of how do we go about both investigating and expressing the kinds of intentions that we have within a system of structures, within a system of categories, under a doctrine of judgment? And how is it the case that certain intentions are kind of pressing up against the inner limit of the way that desire has been structured in any given instance? So my argument is that 
Fisher's calls for consciousness raising actually have something to do with this non-organic vitality passing over organs, whether they be organs of the body, organs of society, in a way that reveals either weaknesses or cracks or interstices through which the new can emerge. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people have something more more specific to say, and maybe this is the last thing I'll I'll say. But um, one thing that comes across quite clearly, I think, in in the work of Deleuze um, and in his work with um, Gotabi, is this concern with um, the limits which we place on ourselves and what we can be and can do. Um, and the importance of trying to think through that and to and to move beyond these pre-given ideas in order to, you know, see, you know, as Spinoza says, what a body can do, right? And you know, we we shouldn't necessarily read that too literally either, because that 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 doesn't necessarily mean that you know we all need to you know uh, become you know sort of cyberpunk characters and things like yeah, that. Yeah, transhumanists, right? like yeah. It's also about like mo- modes of existence, ways of living, forms of life. You know, however we want to, we want to cash that out, um, that's also what it's about. And so I think it also implies a level of social and political experimentation as well, um, beyond the confines of what we are told is you know the only possible system where there is no alternative. And so I think there's also a um, a social and political element to 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 the ethics at work here. Um, and so it shouldn't simply be read as, you know, um, sort of a, a kind of crude lifestyleism or anything like that. Yeah, I think too, though, with the the comment about like what constitutes a body is present in this essay when he talks about uh, D.H. Lawrence um, and the the bodies that are what is it uh, the word it struck me organically defective. I think um, and yeah, organically defective or unattractive um and what's present there is when you take this literal interpretation of of we do not know what a body can do and of course Deleuze will return to that time and time again um as will other theorists contemporarily thinking alongside him and he will do it also in in the cinema books when he says give me a body then and you get this very strange uh well what what would be considered strange to a sort of a conservative reading of what the body means you get this sort of odd heterodox definition of what a body is um and uh, one way in which we can sort of take this as as an ethics is to recognize those limitations right so uh Deleuze in an interview says that he's he likes the work of individuals um like Foucault because Foucault writes from a place of intolerability, that there's something deeply intolerable. I think I brought this up last uh, last time when we spoke about the, the control essay. Deleuze is sort of trying to show us sort of where these neurotic limitations are placed. What we are to do with that is up to us, I think. Um, and to, to recreate a sort of Deleuzean dogmatic would, I think, land us back where we were at the beginning of his project. Um, so I think you're right to to point out that it, it doesn't have to be this one particular uh, tendency that we can sometimes find where people who just just want to endlessly deterritorialize everything or who take this we do not know what a body can do comment to mean we all must become sort of like cyberpunk 2077 characters or whatever. Yeah. And just to one final thing that um, I always every time Deleuze uses the word intolerable, it's always in an interesting way or an interesting context. Um, for example, I, I I remember very clearly that um, he, I've got found it now. So this is from an interview, the interview he did with Antonio Negri. Um, and Deleuze says, quote, Men's only hope lies in a revolutionary becoming, the only way of casting off their shame or responding to what is t- intolerable. Um, so he often uses this idea. I think Will's absolutely right to bring that up. And so there's clearly a kind of level of, you know, ethics, I think, is the way he would prefer to use it. I think he would have the same problem that Nietzsche does, you know, with, with the idea of, sort of morality per se and so on. But clearly, there's, it's not sort of detached from... Yeah, you know, it's a complacent agony, I think. The, the ethics at work here is, I guess as I read it, and to take it to the notion of, of combat, an ethics of, sim- of, of... In a sense, it's an ethics of taking things as they come, but also an activity to that. You know, at one point he says, justice is 
being received when you arrive and being dismissed when you go, and nothing further. It, it, justice has nothing to do with the impulse to kill or or to even kill to, to completely torture and destroy. There is not an impulse of absolute negation working in this. You know, it's 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 judging a body in the same way that you would. So you wouldn't judge a body in the same way that you know you wouldn't sort of just judge a baby as having original sin. He, t- he takes the original sin as being somewhat you know, completely absurd. You simply see what forces are brought to the table and what they can do, and you don't simply try to deflect and destroy everything that simply isn't you, but you sort of let it push back and you see what goes on. He gives he gives uh, love as an example of combat because combat is simply. Um, well, there's two types of combat. There's a combat against in which you're sort of repelling external forces and letting them come into you. And there's a, a second kind of combat where you can take these forces in, as your own, as you can make them a part of yourself. And it's more about the relations between certain excitations upon your body rather than trying to bring them under these universal judgments. It's a very sort of raw material ethics of, okay, what can this do for me? What can I? How can I express myself in this? How can I not simply turn around and say this is eternally bad and condemn both myself and the thing that I'm judging into an eternal cycle of exchange between these universal categories that can never really be exhausted because the very precondition of them existing is that they will go on forever because there are universals and you can find a particular for all of them and subsume it under them. It's logic of trying to avoid subsumption and try to take things as they are. And in that sense, there's, as is there is in Spinoza, a radical openness to this. There is no... Uh, literally no prejudice no prejudgments and this is why it comes into notions of force as there, as there already is and there's an attempt at presuppositionless ethics here there's an openness to the i'm going to say it the plasticity of the body <laughs> there it is and the various forms that it can, they can take he is a affir- he is affirming the plasticity of the body or the capacity for self-differentiation and for difference to come in, into our bodies and into our lives and i guess there's something radical in that something to an extent a little bit unsatisfying because to be satisfied you want to have okay is is it right or not yes or no i think one of the preeminent examples that we encountered over the past year during acid doing acid horizon uh was our discussion with andrew culp the example that he gave of the party banner at the protest in this example serves as initially as a representational device quickly becomes in the heat of a protest a way upon which different fractions of of communists and anarchists become protected from the police by the shielding of the banner falling upon them. It loses its representational function in that moment. We have the emergence of the non-organic vitality of the body without organs in that any sort of pretensions that we had to our, oh, I'm a communist, I'm an anarchist, I'm this variety of anarchist, and so on and so forth, now immediately becomes dissolved in this, this sort of miasma of, of chaos. And what happens is this extreme depersonalization and coming together of a group, knowing who is the external force that is against you, and knowing who is your ally at a given moment in a very visceral sort of way. And I don't think I'll ever forget that example because I think Culp was right on the money with his delusionism. Thank you to our patrons to our Twitter followers, and to all of our listeners, wherever you are, for supporting us during 2020, our first year, and certainly not our last year. If this is your first episode listening to us, you're in luck because we have an extensive back catalog of episodes from 2020. Moreover, we have episodes now planned for 2021, including episodes on Heidegger, on Derrida, on Friedrich Engels, and on the Taoism of Shuangzi. We look forward to you being with us during 2021. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, wherever you're doing social media, and follow us. In any event, stay safe and be with us as the new future emerges over the acid horizon.